Welcome to our continuing study of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is one of those books that you've probably heard of in the Old Testament, part of the Torah, the five books of Moses, part of the law of Moses. It's where you, it's basically kind of where read through the Bible plans, go to die. You know, you get into Deuteronomy, you start to read, thou shalt, thou shalt nots, and you kind of get lost in it. Well, I'd like to take a little more of a thematic approach to it, and I'd really like to pull out of it one of the major themes of the book of Deuteronomy and connect it to the New Testament around this idea of justice. So let me start by taking us back to when and where we are. So we, this is a map of Israel, of the promised land. It's kind of a it's kind of blown up a little bit. You see Jerusalem right here. I'm marking that. And so the date, according to traditional dating system, and that's what I'm going to use, is about 1400 B.C. Moses has taken the Israelites through God's power. It wasn't anything Moses did. He was God's messenger to Pharaoh to say, let these people go out of slavery in Egypt. And so he leads them into the desert. They spend 40 years there basically learning what it looks like to trust God in circumstances that are beyond your control. And that essentially is the book of Exodus. And I would urge you to read that book. Or uh, we have a series on that book that talks about that theme of learning to trust God when you can't control the world around you. Well, they finally arrive here where I've put the circle. They're in the modern-day state of Jordan. And they are just across the Jordan River from Jericho. Moses is a very old man, and he is about to die. And Joshua, the young man, is going to lead them into the promised land. And that's the next book in the Old Testament. After Deuteronomy is the book of Joshua. It tells the story of the Israelites moving into the promised land, what we today call the nation of Israel. Well, as he gets there, he stops and he said, Look, it's been 40 years since you left Egypt. And when we went to Mount Sinai, and you got the Ten Commandments and all the commandments of God, that's been 40 years ago. And so now I want to reiterate and repeat the laws of God, the Ten Commandments and all the other laws. And that's what happens here. And it takes, oh, two or three months is how long they camp there. And all of the book of Deuteronomy happens in that time period. It's really three great sermons speeches, talks by Moses to remind them of the law and uh, the law of Moses. So that's when we are and that's where we are. I want to talk about the idea of justice. And in this particular lesson, in fact, in all the lessons from now on, we're going to look at justice in the book of Deuteronomy. In our first two lessons, what we did was we looked at the identity of the nation of Israel. How did they come from being separate tribes, 12 tribes in Egypt, and through this experience find a common shared identity? Well, first of all, they were chosen by God. If you remember, in Deuteronomy it says this, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, God says to the Israelites, I didn't choose you because you were the most numerous. In fact, you weren't. And he goes on to talk about, I chose you because I loved you. I want to put a New Testament word on what happened there at 1400 B.C. God said, I chose you by grace. Grace is someone 
basically feeling well inclined toward you, someone doing something beneficial for you for no quid pro quo. In other words, you didn't do anything in return and you didn't do anything to necessarily deserve it. It's just unmerited favor is how we like to think of grace. It's basically someone being well disposed toward you and doing you uh, a kindness for no particular reason. And that's what God said. That's how I chose you. I didn't choose you because you were smarter or better looking or more numerous or more powerful. I chose you because I love you. And so their identity is built around their chosenness in God. And then it's also built around a shared truth. If you remember Deuteronomy 6.4, you get this, this fundamental confession of faith. And that is, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or, hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh alone. And so there's this unique relationship and exclusive relationship with God. And so the Israelites are defined by this shared truth, their chosenness, the love of God toward them. And then the law of Moses, the law in Deuteronomy, is part of walking in God's way. In other words, their mission, they also have a shared mission, and that is to go live and walk the way God lives and walks. Well, now that we know that about them, as we dive into the law, we're going to spend a lot of time in between chapters 12 and chapters 26. We're going to look at what it looks like to walk in God's way. We're going to look at some of the commands. We're going to look at a lot of the commands, but I want to look at it and how they apply to this idea of justice. And in this one, I want to take one slice, and that is slavery and oppression. So come with me. I want to, this is an excerpt from an article that Timothy Keller wrote uh, called A Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory. And it's a great article. I would recommend it to you. You can see where you can find it there. But I really like this chart because it's, uh, you have to frame this up some way, and this is as good a way as any to frame this topic. So I want to talk at first about what do we mean when we say justice? Well, it turns out in the modern world, let's start here, let's start now, and then I want to take you back to Deuteronomy. We basically mean different things when we talk about justice. By the way, that is one of our current problems in our culture is we're talking past one another. Let's look at these four, and what Keller's done is put it on a scale, and rightly so. On the far left, you have individualism, the ideas of justice that relate to the uniqueness of the individual, and you see uh, John Locke and David Hume, and the United States, for example, is built on this end of the scale. Our nation is founded on the political ideology of Locke and Hume and this idea of individualism, and so when we're on that side, you're going to say, oh, okay, these are traditional American ways of looking at justice. And on the far right side, you see the idea of collectivism. Collectivism focuses more on the group of people. And Karl Marx is one, but not the only person, that looked at history, looked at justice, looked at economics from a collectivist point of view. So you're going to recognize each one of these, and you're going to go, ah, 
I understand. There are people in our culture, if you pick up the paper or read your social media, if you just stop for a minute and you think they're talking about justice or how to treat people right or how to right wrongs in our society, and you know what? They're coming from this view of justice. We don't agree about what is just. And here are four, four ideas. Begin with the idea of a libertarian idea of justice, and it really focuses on freedom. Now, this is a shorthand, and I'll try to keep this brief, but I think it's going to be very good to look at what we think of as justice and, and the different ideas we have and the fact that we can't agree. Then I want to take you to Deuteronomy, and I want to talk about biblical justice, and we're going to look at it from several angles. So libertarians basically think that freedom is the basis for justice. In other words, it's just, it's right, if you and I as individuals are basically free to do what we want to do. Now, there are, are uh, caveats. Libertarians don't think that I could you know, take a gun and shoot somebody, and then that's just because it's what I wanted to do. Uh, we're not talking about ridiculous things here. Let's stay in the, in the middle, in the rational realm. But basically, a libertarian view says you should maximize personal freedom. Injustice, for example would be telling you you can't do things that you're like, why? You need a reason to tell me that I can't do something. In fact, let me give you an example that I think might help each of the four of these. Let's assume for a minute you have a city, and it's on a river. And then a few miles downstream, you have another town on that same river. And so the people in the first town upstream say, you know what? Depending on how much rain we get, the river goes up and down from year to year. And you know, when, when things aren't good, when we don't get much rain, we're struggling to find enough water to drink, and we certainly have bad crops because we don't have enough water to irrigate it. And so what they did was they said, look, here's a solution. Let's dam up the river, and then let's let a big lake form behind the dam and we'll let water out as we need it, but then if it doesn't rain much, we've got a reservoir of water. Libertarian idea is there's nothing wrong with that. You're taking care of your community, and you're taking care of your family. Well, let's go downstream, and let's look at the, the other town that's downstream. And they say, wait a minute, that's not just. Why? I mean, is there something wrong with the libertarians in the first town building a dam so that they can have enough water? They say no. But the second town looks at justice a little differently, and we call this a more liberal point of view. When I say liberal, I don't, I'm not talking about politically liberal. I'm talking about the basis for Western liberal democracies. Think Europe, the United Kingdom, the United States are all liberal Western democracies, meaning they're on the side of defining justice as fairness and individuals as having a right to fairness. Okay, It's still individually focused, like I have a right to fair treatment, you have a right to fair treatment. Well, the second town says, wait a minute, what you did is unjust, and they go, why? We're just taking care of our families, and uh, you know, we're right here by the river, we just dammed it up. And they said, yes, but that's not fair. 
because we also relied on that river, and because of what you did, now our lives are going to be a little more difficult, depending on how much water you let out. In a bad year, we'll have even less water than we normally would, and that's not fair. In other words, you're receiving benefits that we're not receiving. And so another way of looking at justice is, is everybody being treated substantially the same? That's a different way of looking at justice. So the two towns get together and they go to the government, let's say, who has the power to, to and the, the small town says, make them get rid of that dam. Big town says, how can you possibly tell us that? We're just trying to, to have water for our families. You don't have the right, you don't have the power to do that. And so the government happens to be utilitarian. Utilitarianism moves from the individual being paramount to the group being paramount. And so the government says this. The government says, you know what? There are a million of you in the first town. There are a thousand of you in the second town. And if we get rid of that dam, I've got 1,000,000 people whose lives are going up and down from drought to flood, etc. But if I leave that dam, I have 1 million happy people and 1,000 miserable people. You know what? The greatest good for the greatest number is just. There is no society, they argue, that where everybody can be treated exactly the same, even liberals aren't looking for sameness, they just want fairness. And said, you know, at the end of the day, we got a million happy people, a thousand not, that's not so bad. In fact, that's just. Okay, that one might be a little harder to follow, but let me give you a great modern day example of that. For example, if you're familiar with the people known as the Uyghurs, U-I-G-H-U-R, this is an ethnic group of people that live in China. They are Muslims, about a million of these Uyghur people. What the Chinese government has done, what I'm telling you is not debatable, this is just a matter of record, has basically taken those million Uyghurs and put them in re-education camps. Some would say concentration camps, but let's give the benefit of the doubt. They're certainly forcibly compelling them. They're splitting families educating children in the Chinese way, not the Muslim way, not the ethnic Uyghur traditions. And so those million people have been put in camps. They've lost their freedom and they're being re-educated. And now you and I say we're looking at uh, the liberal uh, democratic view of justice. We'll say that's not fair. Those individuals have a right to be free as well. They, you can't just round them up and take away their freedom. Chinese government says, what do you mean? That's not what we're about. I'm, I'm running a country of a billion people. And I want the greatest good for the greatest number. And what we have learned in China is if you let groups of people begin to agitate and break off, it makes for rebellion and it makes for unhappy living for everybody. So we don't want our little minority of Christians splitting our country. We don't want these Muslim Uyghurs causing problems. If I have to take a million people and put them in concentration camps or put them in re-education camps, whatever it may be, and I've got a billion people that are happier because of it, that's just. 
Now, I'm not telling you that I agree with that or that you should agree with it, but what I am telling you is there are people who say that's what justice really is. And so they would disagree. And then finally, what uh, this chart calls postmodern idea of justice is, uh, and it's not a modern idea, this is a very Marxist idea of justice, which goes back, uh, you know, at least a century and a half, but basically is that power, justice is about an equilibrium of power. So let's go back to our example. You've got the big city built a dam, little city struggling. What's just? Libertarians say they're, they're welcome to build a dam. You just lived in the wrong place. Move, right? And the liberals say, well, wait a minute. That's not fair. We've got to find a way to treat those individuals and let them somehow have access to water as well. And then the utilitarians say, well, you can't make everybody happy. There's not enough water for everybody. So I can make a million happy and a thousand, sorry, just kind of the way it works out. This more collectivist Marxist would say, look, you have two groups of people here, one of whom has power, they've got the dam, and one of whom doesn't. The fact that you have that power makes you unjust. And so this group of people needs to come burn down your town and take over. Okay, that's a little tongue-in-cheek. But my point is, is that you need to balance this power out, and it is all a power struggle. Why is this called Marxist? Because that is essentially what Karl Marx proposed in an economic sense. Karl Marx said you can understand all of history, you can understand what is just and unjust as one group of people economically more advantaged than another group of people. Cultural Marxism, which is what this view is typically called, is Marxism in a cultural sense, not an economic sense, and that is you have a group of people that's doing better in your society in various ways than other groups of people, and that's unjust. Why? Did they do something wrong? That's not the point. The point is you just have different outcomes, and so that is the result of a power struggle. It's a culturally Marxist way of looking at relationships. And so in that group, they would say that is unjust because you have a group of people that are disempowered from access to this water. And so I, I simply want to tell you this by stepping back and say, look, they're probably a little piece of each of those ideas that you might resonate with and go, you know, they kind of have a point there. I may not agree, but there's a little point there. And another one, well, you know, fairness is important. There's a point there. And, you know, I don't like seeing people who don't have any power being abused. Now, you understand that that fourth view isn't saying that you did something wrong and you intentionally abused this other group of people. Just the fact that you have power and they don't makes you bad. So you go, well, wait a minute. I don't like oppression, but I'm not sure I agree with that. So in other words, there are all kinds of, of points in each one of these. But if you want to understand why we're having such trouble with discourse today, it's we don't really know what's just, what's right. And so as we look at Deuteronomy, I think this is really helpful because we can start to look at, from a biblical point of view, what is just? And I thought we would start with the idea of the idea of slavery and oppression. Normally I would just talk about oppression because oppression covers a lot of things, but slavery is such a hot topic. I thought you might like to know a little bit about how the Bible approaches that particular oppressive situation. So let's start with Deuteronomy 10. Yet the Lord set his affection, his love, 
on your forefathers and loved them, he chose you their descendants above all the nations as it is today. Remember we talked about that's who they are. They are God's chosen and loved people. And by the way, hold this thought, Ephesians chapter 1, you too as Christ followers are God's chosen and loved people. He goes on, he says, circumcise your hearts, therefore. Do not be stiff-necked any longer. Basically what he's saying is, is get rid of the rebellion in your hearts and be obedient. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. And here's, this is interesting. Now notice how God is described here in the book of Deuteronomy. He says he's Lord of lords and God of gods, and he can smite you if he wants to, and he'll wipe you from the face of the earth if you make him mad. Look what it says. Who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, meaning non-ethnic person living in your territory, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. So let me pause for just a second. We're learning something about God's nature, aren't we? That God is not partial, that God loves those who are fatherless and the widow, the disempowered, and the alien the other, the person who's not like me. You're not part of the 12 tribes, you're somebody else. And yet God says, who loves them, giving them food and clothing. He said, and you are to love these people, why? Notice how often it comes back to, because you yourselves were living in a land that was not your land. You were outsiders in that land. And so you start to see God's nature, and you get the first clue that biblical justice doesn't flow from some philosophical idea of power or happiness or fairness or freedom, per se, even though you'll see intersections. Each of those has a little piece of, of God's nature, and you're going to see some things go, oh, well, that's kind of like that. But essentially, it doesn't line up with any of those. It lines up with God's character. And so what I'd like to do is start with the idea of slavery. We're going to do slavery and oppression in this particular lesson. This is a picture, by the way. This is archaeology. Uh, it's found in Nineveh, okay, modern-day Iraq. And it is depicting an event in history. So the guy on the left side of the picture is an Assyrian warrior. And in 722 B.C., so 2,700 years ago, the Assyrian army conquered the Jewish people. Those captives that you see are Hebrews. They're Semitic peoples. These are Jews. And in 722 B.C., Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, defeated 10 tribes of the Jews and deported them and enslaved them. So before we jump into what Deuteronomy has to say about slavery, I'd like to talk about different kinds of slavery. We in uh, 21st century America, not everybody thinks this way, but we have a particular view of slavery because of what happened in our past in our country. Uh, but actually slavery existed in almost all cultures through all time. And there are different kinds of slavery. So, for example, we tend to think of slavery based on different 
races. That was the experience in our country. Slavery was almost entirely racially based. Not here. These people are all racially Semitic people. There's nothing racial, uh, a huge difference here, and that's not why they're going to be slaves. The Assyrians had slaves from everywhere. They enslaved people because they conquered them. So you're now our slaves. Well, there are different kinds of slavery as well. What we experienced in American history is called chattel slavery, C-H-A-T-T-E-L. And that is where you own this person. It's hard to even say that. It's so unbiblical. But you own this person for the rest of their life and any children they might have for the rest of their lives. In other words, your property, anybody else's property, and it's chattel slavery. That's really common historically. I mean, that's the form of slavery based on racial difference and chattel slavery. This isn't based on racial difference in, for example, this one example. But it is chattel slavery. These people were going to be enslaved for the rest of their lives unless they rebelled and overthrew the Assyrians or somebody else came in and defeated them and for some reason didn't just make them their slaves, which was the common thing to do. They were likely going to be slaves the rest of their lives. But there were other kinds of slavery in the ancient world called bond slavery or bond servants. Bond slavery was also very common throughout history. Uh, So, for example, in North America, before Europeans got here, you tended to have chattel slavery. But in Europe, in a lot of places, you tended to have bond slavery. For the Jews were one of the peoples that engaged in what's called bond servant or bond slavery. And what happened in bond slavery is you would basically sell yourself or someone else, like one of your children, to serve somebody for a particular period of time, usually to pay a debt. And so it was voluntary slavery. Nevertheless, it could be unjust. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm just trying to draw a distinction between different kinds of slavery because the Bible's going to draw a distinction. You're going to see it just really clearly. But basically, bond slavery said, look, I owe you a debt. I can't pay the debt. And you could haul me off and send me to prison for the rest of my life. But instead, here is, uh, I'm going I'm to work for you for three years to pay off the debt. And after that, I'm free. Okay, so it's not me and my kids and anything I ever do for the rest of my life. You can see how it's a little bit different. So when I talk about slavery, I'm not going to talk just ubiquitously about it. I want to talk about, I want to make some distinctions because historically there are big distinctions. Now, there are other kinds of slavery. Those are the two that should suffice for what we want to talk about right now. So let's go to the book of Deuteronomy. And I want to talk about specifically slavery, although this is really in... The Bible doesn't look at it as, I want to talk to you about slavery. It wants to talk to you about all kinds of injustice. I want to talk about all kinds of oppression. I split this out. I don't want you to think the Bible split this out. It says this, If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you for six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, grain, or your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. So what's going on here? 
The Bible acknowledges that this kind of bondservant is a better social way of dealing with a real problem than dad goes to prison for the rest of his life and mom and the kids starve. And so the Bible makes allowance for these Hebrews to deal with this social problem in this way. Let me tell you how this comes about, because you may think, how did this ever happen? Okay, so let me tell you a story. My grandfather uh, lived in the South, and he was a sharecropper. They didn't have bond servant, but, but it's exactly the same reason why they did. So my grandfather, I remember working, farm, uh, in, working the farm in the summer. He didn't own the house. He didn't own the land. But he worked the land and split the money with the landholder. This in and of itself wasn't necessarily unjust. Well, it depends, right? If you think of uh, fairness, it wasn't unfair because somebody bought that land and somebody built that house. And so you can live there, you can farm this land, and we will split the money, and you'll have a good living, and I'll have a good living. It wasn't unfair. And my, my grandfather never thought, well, I should have this land as my own. Well, no. He said, I didn't buy this land. I, I didn't put the money into this land. I didn't prepare this land. But if you think of justice's power, oh, he definitely had a lot less power in this situation. So my point there is not to get into some argument about justice, but simply to say how you look at that situation very much depends on what you mean by justice. Well, let me tell you what the Bible means by justice there. So I remember years when the harvest was not good. And one year, the harvest's not good, that's fine. He'd put away a little money, and so he was still able to buy the seed and the equipment and, and all of that, and then hopefully he makes it back because he has a good year. But I remember him having two bad years in a row, and that's, that's all it took for him was a second bad harvest, and I remember him borrowing money from the bank to pay his taxes and hoping next two years were better so he could get back to even. Now, I tell you that story because that happened in America in my lifetime and many of your lifetimes. And you may say, well, gee, that's fair, that's not fair, that's just, that's not just. But that's the way the situation worked. Um, and so he was able to have some other way other than going to jail because he couldn't pay off his debts, right? And then his family, who knows what happens to them. He borrowed the money. Uh, he could then get a, he could also get a loan from the landowner. They tended to be, in this case, was, was a kind and a just individual who wanted him to succeed. But in ancient times, what happens when a sharecropper or a little peasant farmer who owns a little plot and he has two or three bad years and he can't pay? And so he's like, we're going to starve. I mean, I don't have any grain to feed my family and I don't have any money to buy seed for the future, what am I going to do? And so there's a provision made where it says he could go to a wealthy landowner, for example, and said, I will work for you for X number of years and you will give me seed to plant this, but then I'll work for you. I'll be your bond servant. And what the law of Moses says is that after six years, you let him go free. And not only do you let him go free and say, okay, you're square on your debt, you give him of the prosperity, a little piece of what he helped you with, you give him even more. Now, once you stop and think for a minute, that's not fair. In other words, if you're the, the landowner, you say, look, I gave him 
$1,000. I'm going to make this up. $1,000 so that he wouldn't lose his home and he wouldn't lose, you know, paid his mortgage for, you know, as long as needed. And he was able to farm this. And in return, he worked for me. Square deal. I don't owe you anything else. Already paid your mortgage and, and did these other things. And he goes, that's right. That's fair. But the Bible says that's not the basis for God's justice. He said, you too were slaves before, and when I brought you out of Egypt, I brought you with more than you went in. You didn't leave empty-handed. And he said, don't let this person leave empty-handed. So the motivation is not utility. The motivation is not uh, fairness. The motivation is the nature of God and what he taught them through being slaves in Egypt. And so if you look at this, God says, this is just. Now your family doesn't starve. You get this worker for six years, but you're also going to be generous when you give him his freedom and let him go. And so you don't have this lifelong slavery or chattel slavery is not a Hebrew kind of an idea at all. Let's move on. Here's another passage in Deuteronomy. Again, it's disconnected because the Bible doesn't just have a section on slavery. This is all caught up in what justice looks like. Now we're going to talk about a slave from another a foreigner who runs away or escapes slavery and comes to live in the land of the Jews. Well, you know, in our country, there was a lot of dispute over that because the law said you had to return a runaway slave. What does the law of Moses say? If a slave has taken refuge with you, now we're talking about a foreigner. We're not, we already know what to do if this is a Hebrew. But a foreigner comes to you, do not hand him over to his master. Let him live among you wherever he likes and in whatever town he chooses. Do not oppress him. And again, you see this idea that the way you're going to deal with oppression is modeled on the oppression that you experience. It's almost as though, curious idea, that part of the reason they were slaves in Egypt was to teach them about about God's justice. So many times when you read the law of Moses, you'll see, I'm telling you this because you were slaves in Egypt. And so in other words, I taught you about justice. We got beyond fairness. We got beyond freedom. We got beyond power. And we're going to see biblical idea of justice. Let me switch to the New Testament briefly. Uh, and again, I realize I don't have time to go into huge detail here, but I want you to get a sense of the Bible's taken a little bit of a different approach to this idea of justice than anything that you've heard. Similar in some respects, but different. Here's Romans chapter 6. The New Testament completely is a perspective changer on this whole idea. In the New Testament, slavery is rampant. I mean, slavery is a normal uh, way of life. Estimates of, in the Roman Empire, which everybody's, well, not everybody, but most of the world's part of the Roman Empire at this time. We're now in the New Testament times. And that a huge percentage of people were slaves. I mean, it could not have operated without slavery. It wasn't ethnic slavery. Didn't matter what your skin color was, your eye color. Didn't matter where you came from. They would enslave anybody. And look how the New Testament take, builds on the laws of Deuteronomy and changes the perspective. We know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The New Testament steps back and says, if you just look at this life, which is kind of the way the law of Moses looked at their life, 
he said, you're going to have one view of this, but now I want you to understand eternity. And the real slave master is not a human being. It's slavery to sin, and that will keep you enslaved forever. Don't you know, Romans 6.16 says, that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This is the gospel. In other words, did Jesus come to do away with the institution of bond slavery and chattel slavery in the Roman Empire? Nothing so small. Would Christianity ultimately be on the ark to do away with that and many, many, many other kinds of oppression? Yes, historically, it is. But Jesus said, oh no, I came to solve the root problem, the ultimate problem, and that is you are slaves to sin and you need to be set free. And so you see this complete perspective change. And the New Testament inherits the law of Moses and then makes it eternal. Again, you see in the New Testament, he says this, first, very, very uh, practical. We're going to apply this practically. Paul says, were you a slave when you were called? Meaning, were you a slave when you became a follower of Christ? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is free in Christ. Similarly, he who was free in this culture when he was called by Christ became a slave of Christ. To obey him. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. And what you saw in the early church, let's go back to our peasant farmer. Remember Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4? What you see in the early church is when you hit hard times, a widow, an orphan, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. What happened in the early church? Did you say, well, go sell yourself as a bond slave for six years and then you'll be free and get out of it? Instead, what you see happening in the church is we are going to help you voluntarily help you because you are my brother or sister in Christ. And so you get this idea of justice being changed. The idea of justice in Deuteronomy is far better than what you saw in the world. It begins to reflect God's nature, and the idea of justice in the New Testament is ultimately who God really is. So finally, another passage talks about slaves obey your earthly masters in everything. Do it not only when their eyes on you, but to win their favor. Whatever you do, work at it with it as your heart, as working for the Lord, because ultimately you're free in Christ. You're here to serve Christ. And part of that is if you find yourself in this circumstance, then do it. A lot of people look at this verse and say, oh my goodness, the Bible supports slavery. Well, hopefully you've seen enough now to know, not at all. But the point is, God's looking at something bigger. And so he says, if that's the stage of life that you're in, I have a purpose in that for you. Do it. And by the way, if you're a master, provide your slaves with what is right and what is fair because you know you have a master in heaven and he shows no partiality and you will be judged for the way you behave. And so as you see, again, this isn't exhaustive, but I wanted you to see the arc and the flow of the idea here. And if you look at those four views of justice, not one of them actually fits this very well. It all goes back to what we started with. You begin to see justice flowing out of the nature and the character of God. Well, the second is to go to a bigger uh, picture, and I want to talk about oppression. This is a picture, this is a painting, 
obviously, it's not a picture. It's a painting of Ruth. And so the woman on the right is Ruth, and she is a widow. And the man on the left with the hat is Boaz. And you may remember this story from the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And uh, the book of Ruth is a great example of God's idea of justice to people who are marginalized. And so let's talk for just a minute about who was marginal and who was powerless in the ancient world. Well, needless to say, people that had no family to take care of them. Orphans, widows, uh, tended to be, if you had no family to take you in, you were going to be marginalized. I mean, there was nothing there to take care of you. And so you didn't have much power. Now, those aren't the only people that didn't have power. Our little peasant farmer that we've talked about didn't have a lot of power or political clout or say. And so those, those two, they too are involved in this idea of justice. But God typically teaches justice by going to the extremes. In other words, here's, here's what a lot of our modern readers miss on this, is that as Jesus goes to the least powerful in the society, and as Deuteronomy talks about the least powerful, sometimes we think God only cares about the least powerful. That's not true at all. I mean, that's more a postmodern idea of power, is the only people being oppressed here are the absolute least powerful people. Well, that's not true. God understands that people can be oppressed in all kinds of ways. The biggest way is we're all oppressed by sin and held captive to it. But even in terms, that farmer may have a, a dad and a mom and 2.3 children and yet be oppressed because someone is taking advantage of his lack of power or her lack of power, her lack of being able to get a good lawyer. Or, in other words, oppression doesn't only occur to the people that are fatherless and uh, widows and aliens. But God usually teaches how to treat everybody by going to the least of these. So it doesn't mean you're only supposed to be kind to fatherless and widows. It just means if you're going to treat them that way, then you need to treat everybody else this way. There's a special concern in the scriptures for the most marginalized. It does not mean justice doesn't apply to everyone. So, go into Deuteronomy and you realize that these categories serve as the perfect test case for what justice looks like. I mean, if you think about the Greek world, Roman world, their basic idea is love your friends, hate your enemies. And so what is, and they thought that was just. Now you may say, oh, that's not just. Well, fine, that's your opinion. But billions of people for a thousand years thought that was what justice was. So I'm not telling you you're wrong. I'm just telling you that that's your opinion. And they didn't share it. And they thought you were a just man. You were a just woman if you took care of your friends and if you did whatever you could to sabotage your enemies. Actually, more people today think that than you would believe. But basically, they thought that was justice. And so God says, no, in fact, I want to refute that whole idea. And I'm going to refute it by taking the biggest example I can find, the least powerful person, the least uh, influential person, and I'm going to say, this is how you treat them. Now do you understand how this applies to everybody else as well? And so that's why the scriptures talk about this so much. Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice. Do not take the cloak of the widow as a pledge, 
as collateral. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command this to you. That's the second time you've heard that, isn't it? It says, look, you were powerless also, and you know what it's like to be treated that way. And so don't go to the widow and say, all you have left is the bed you sleep on and the coat that you have. I'll take that in collateral. He says, no, don't do that. Because you should know better, you too were slaves. This is not the character of God, remember? He talked about, he said, who is impartial, does not take bribes, who stands up for the cause of the orphan and the widow and the alien. And then again, there's a famous passage, and this is what's happening in that painting, by the way, because Ruth is a widow, no way to make food, don't have any land to farm, don't have any skills. I mean, it's not like you can go work in the GM plant. You know, it's, it, there was no opportunity there. And so look what God said. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf of grain, don't go back to get it. Don't be greedy. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in the work of your hands. Be generous. When you beat the olives from your trees, don't go over the branches a second time because there's still olives left. He says, leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines a second time to get every last grape. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. And so what do you see? This is what's happening is she basically goes to Boaz's field, and they were supposed to leave the grain around the edge of the field. And so she's cutting it and taking it home and making flour, and they're basically hoping to live off of that. Now, is that fair? Well, that's not the standard for justice here, is it? Fairness. Because it's not. In other words, why should I let somebody else come have my grain? It's my grain. I'll take it all. That's not a biblical idea, is it? Does a biblical idea say, you know what? Actually, she's powerless, and you've got a lot of land. You should give her half your land. That's not what it says, right? So you really see a blending of the individual's relationship with God and a concern for the community. It's neither purely individualistic and it's not collectivist, communistic either. You see this blend that reflects God's character that really is different than what we see in justice. New Testament, same idea. James chapter 1, religion, this is a strong statement, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. He said, if I had to boil it down to you and give you a behavioral way to know if you have real religion, is are you just? And how does he say it? He says, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. But the first part's what I want to highlight. Look at, he's picking up. He said, look, you want to know if you really have a good relationship with God. And he's not saying this is the only way you know or this is the litmus test. What he's really saying, encapsulating is, that your faith is as strong as how you treat the least of these. And that then applies to everybody else. What if I'm nice to the, to the widows and the fatherless, but I'm really mean to everybody else? Well, obviously, that's not what he's talking about. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And James kind of does a little shorthand, and he says, you want to know what real faith is? It's just. How do I know it's just? Look after the least of these. <clears throat> then again, in Luke chapter 20, this is Jesus. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. 
Why? Because they teach you the law? No. In fact, he said, your righteousness needs to be as good as theirs. They follow the law really well. But beware of them. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces, have the most important seats in the synagogues, places of honor at banquets like, look at me, I'm so righteous. They devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. So does justice come from keeping all the commandments? No. Should you keep all the commandments? Yes. Jesus says, you need to keep the commandments. But you know what? You also have to show justice and do right. And that looks like not that kind of hypocrisy. I'm a righteous man, and I'm foreclosing on people that have no power whatsoever. So you begin to see this idea of biblical justice flows from the nature of God more than any particular philosophical facet. We'll, next time, go back through our list really quickly to show a counterpoint. And in our next lesson, I'd like to move on from the idea of oppression, and I want to look at justice as you look at the problem of poverty. Jesus is famous for saying, the poor you will always have with you. The book of Deuteronomy says the same thing. And so again, we're going to look at this idea of how to deal with poverty. Our nation has tried to deal with these issues of oppression and slavery and poverty since our inception. And you may argue that our idea of justice is better than any in the world. And that, in my view, is true. And yet, as we become more fragmented today and we can't even agree on what's right, I want to suggest to you that a simple return to a biblical idea of justice a justice that reflects God's character and not some philosophical idea we might have is really the path to unity and peace and justice. I'll see you next time.